Hello, everybody. Hope uh, you're going to have a wonderful evening. It's middle of the day here in Burgundy. It's a beautiful day with blue sky, a cold wind, starting to have to have fires in the evening. Um, but it's a great weather in which to be drinking good wine. Uh, sadly, I'm not uh, joining you with the wines today in person, uh, but they are almost all wines which I've tasted myself from quite recently. And what I'm hoping to be able to do is tell you a little bit about Burgundy, my ideas about Burgundy, and some background information. What the wines actually taste like is much more down to you guys. You've got them in the glasses in front of you, uh, so you can make your own minds up. And some of you will like one wine, and some of you will like another wine. Um, it doesn't matter. It's always better if the uh, pleasure gets spread around the room and around different glasses. So <clears throat> when I started out actually as a wine merchant rather than as a wine writer or critic, uh, I knew I was going to work with French wines, but I didn't know exactly where from. Um, and I went round France in 1981 in all the different regions. And the one I fell in love with there and then, uh, and even more so since, was Burgundy, because not only were the wines wonderful, but the guys making them were just so enthusiastic about what they were doing and so keen to make the best wine that they could and to discuss the difference between this small plot here and that small plot there. Um, it's an unbelievably complex region, even though, broadly speaking, you're really only dealing with one grape variety in white, which is evidently Chardonnay, and uh, one in red, um, the famous Pinot Noir. But the subtleties of difference between one side of the room and the other side of the room, as it might be, um, are amazing. So as you'll know, um, the vineyards get classified according to their potential um, brilliance. It doesn't guarantee that every wine from a top classification will be good because it's perfectly possible that uh, somebody isn't really up to standard in making it. But what it does tell you is that a Grand Cru has the potential to be an even greater wine than a Premier Cru and uh, a Premier Cru is more interesting than something which is at the village level. So tonight we've got a couple of village wines. We have got, I think, uh, four Premier Cru wines and then a Grand Cru to finish. Uh, they're all good vintages, and some of them will be a little bit young, but it's really, really hard to get fully mature wine these days. But all of them should be open for enjoyment, uh, even while while young. So uh, the best whites, of course, come from the southern part of the um, main Burgundy region, the Côte d'Or, uh, the bit called the Côte de Bone, and we've got uh, two whites, and then five reds, which are all from the northern part, the Côte de Nuit, which is most people's favourite for the top reds. Um, <clears throat> you can probably consider three great villages to make wine for the whites, which are Chassain Maraschais, Pyrénées Maraschais, and Merso, though some would say that Saint-Aubin has come up to join them. And what we've got with our first two wines is a, um, a Chassain and a Punini. So they're all almost all the villages we've got tonight are double-barreled, because in the 19th century, somebody had the bright idea, initially in Chevrolet-Chambertin, that in order to do a little bit of rudimentary marketing, let's hyphenate, let's add the name of our best vineyard, uh, which in the case of the two whites is Morachet. So first of all, Pyrénées and then Chassain, but in the same year, 1879, 
they applied to be allowed to add this word Maraschet. It's a small vineyard. It's uh, eight hectares, 20 acres, um, but it does make the most glorious wine, white wine of Burgundy, possibly of the world. And it always has done. Ever since anybody first wrote books about Burgundy, uh, the first one we really know of is 1728, it still gets mentioned as being quintessentially uh, much more exciting than anything else that was around. So these are two small villages which are either side of a main road. And uh, if you're in a family of one village, you're not allowed to cross the road to marry somebody from the other village. Um, otherwise, you get kicked out of your initial home. Um, very old fashioned in that respect. Um, and our first wine is going to be at the village level. Um, so it's not a Premier Cru or Grand Cru, but it is from a single named vineyard, which is called Le Concy des Champs. It doesn't really mean anything much, but Champs is a French word for field. Um, from a producer called Domaine Hubert Lamy. Uh, the Lamy's have been around for a long time, and that's a theme that we're going to see regularly because Burgundy is very much a farming community. And so you get the same families um, who marry each other, sometimes seem to marry themselves, but uh, uh, it's all a very, very tight-knit community. And often the person who really put the estate, the domain, on the map uh, continues to have the domain named after him. In fact, though Hubert Lamy is still alive and, and well, um, he's been retired for quite a while, 20-plus years, and it's his son Olivier who has really made these wines exciting. Um, he's a fanatic in the vineyard. We like to say that most of the uh, wines, the success of the wines, uh, come from the vineyards. Um, growing your grapes is absolutely essential. And if you've got beautiful grapes coming in, then you have a much better chance of doing the right thing in your winery and ending up with a great wine. So Olivier Lamy, his grapes seem to ripen before other people's, but they have all the sugar you want, but especially all the concentration of flavor. Um, I'm assuming that you have it served. Uh, let me know if not. Um, and do interrupt me if you have particular questions you want to ask. Otherwise, I think we'll have time for a little bit of a question and answer uh, session at the end. Um, so this is a vineyard, as was the case with a lot of Chassin Maraschet, which used to be red wines, used to be grown with Pinot. And then in uh, 2005, Olivier Lamy decided to replant it with Chardonnay because he thinks Chardonnay is more successful for most parts of, of Chassin. Um, so these are younger vines than most of the wines we'll be having. They were just 14 years old at the time of the 2019 harvest. Um, we tend not to ask too many um, questions about wine, white wine making, which is a shame because it's actually just as important as red wine making. But the key points here is that Olivier doesn't like to use much in the way of new wood. He doesn't want the flavor of new wood. He wants the wine to dominate. Um, <clears throat> and he likes to crush the grapes, which is now rare in Burgundy, before he presses them. So if you do that, you get a little bit more of the skin, which is where a lot of the flavor is, um, the effect of the skin uh, in your wine. So uh, that's what he does. And though he doesn't use new oak, he uses slightly bigger wood than most people do. And he keeps the wine in barrel for longer. So this 2019 would probably not have been bottled until the spring or summer of, of 2021. Um, 
And 2019 is a lovely, luscious, uh, very easily accessible vintage that's pleasing everybody everywhere. Uh, and because of that slightly luscious aspect to it, um, then I think it's a wine that you can drink quite young. There's probably still, um, you're tasting the wine, not me, but there's probably still a little bit of austerity because Olivier wants to make a wine that will last a long time. So you probably get that on the palate, but the fruit that you are, uh, initially find should be very attractive. And these days, to keep the wine fresh and to avoid any cork taint, he uses the artificial diam closures uh, rather than traditional corks. Um, <clears throat> should be the case for that wine. So there are a few thoughts, a bit of background. Um, it's, in a sense, the junior wine of the tasting to kick off, but it is made by somebody who really knows what he's doing uh, and is, is a bit of a guru to the younger generation uh, coming out behind him. If you have the other white wine alongside, I can talk about that. So uh, we have got a wine that's two years older and is a premier crew from Puligny Maraché. Um, so it is higher in status, probably be higher in price, from Mr. Francois Carillon. And the Carillons have been around for the longest time. They go back at least to 1611, so that's over 400 years now, um, and probably earlier than that. But they can trace reference to a winemaking Carillon back in, in 1611. Um, <clears throat> the wines of Puligny Maraché are supposed to be a little bit more characterful than Chassin Maraché. They're supposed to be more floral in their bouquet and then have a very good backbone based on acidity. Um, though in recent years, the acidity levels are lower as the weather is warmer. And um, this vineyard, Perrier, Perrier sounds as though it um, means stony, because Pierre being French for stone. Um, but actually, back in um, many hundreds of years ago, it was the name used to mean a stone quarry. So in this vineyard, they dug out the stone in order to build the houses of Punini Marche. Um, so all these villages are you know, um, a thousand years old plus, and uh, <clears throat> the vineyards have been planted in one form or another for at least that time, probably longer, anything up to 2,000 years. But it's only in the last couple of hundred years that we've started getting interested in the characteristic of one vineyard as opposed to another. So when I last tasted this, which was just over a year ago, I felt that it was maturing uh, reasonably, um, not, not fast in a negative sense, but it was just coming forward and getting itself ready to drink. Uh, and the 2017s have proved to be a little bit richer uh, than would be uh, than we thought right at the outset. Uh, so it should be in a good um, uh, place now. I think you get a lot of ripeness in the fruit, um, but there should be very good energy levels to balance that. And it's probably going to uh, deliver um, more detail in future years, but it's probably pretty much ready as from now. So those are our two Burgundy Chardonnays to, to kick off the occasion. Um, <clears throat> as I say, theoretically, the second wine is the grander of the two. Um, Francois Carillon has made a very good reputation for himself <clears throat> as a slightly more modern style of winemaker. 
<clears throat> you'll also find his brother. They worked together in the family domain until 2010, and then the two brothers separated amicably. You know, it's not a big fight. But um, <clears throat> uh, the other, uh, Carrion, Jacques Carrion, makes a slightly more old-fashioned um, wine, which tends not to be ready to drink very early, but can be good when it is ready. Um, one thing I would say, <coughs> excuse me, uh, one thing I would say about white wines of Burgundy is that I wouldn't serve them too cold. Most places in the world tend to serve their white wines chilled and their red wines um, a little too warm. And in the case of Burgundy, I think it's better to have the temperatures of the two wines relatively close. So I serve my red Burgundy a little bit cooler than most people would, or most I would with most other regions. And I saw <clears throat> I served my white Burgundy just a little bit warmer, well, you know, without the chill on it. Um, so I have no idea what temperature you have at the moment, um, but I'm sure it'll be interesting if you leave some wine in the glass and come back to it later on if it warms up a bit. I think you'll find more individual detail in both of those wines, more character. But um, everybody has their own view, and. Um, I do remember doing a tasting. I, I went for a day to Korea to do a tasting uh, uh, for a wine group there and uh, commissioned to do it. And it was mostly um, red burgundy, but I served one white burgundy. And somebody said to me, uh, Mr. Morris, don't you understand that uh, in our market, we don't like white wines much and not from burgundy. Uh, you know, I'm a bit disappointed that you've wasted the, actually we had two white wines. Yeah, you sort of wasted a couple of choices on white. And then when I served the wines, I served them the temperature, which I like, that little bit warmer. And they said, Mr. Morris, we thought you were the expert and you allowed the wines to be served too warm. And I said, no, this is the right temperature for this sort of white wine. And then at the end of the evening, I asked people to write down on a piece of paper what their favorite wines were. And guess what? Their two favorite wines for the two white wines. And they had enjoyed the reds. Um, so there's an awful lot of work on that to be done, I think, all around the world. And even smart restaurants, um, even in France, I think often serve the whites a bit too cold. All right. I shall have a, a sip of my Oriental Beauty tea. That's very interesting, actually. The, the Korean was served a little bit warmer than the first one. So uh, I, think, I think the cook can't tell the difference. It's a little right. bit more um, and uh, with more complexity, I think. I think that's my reason. So. Okay, good. Well, thank you. Thank you for the feedback. Right. Um, well, as I say, you can go on sniffing at those and enjoying them um, as the evening goes on. Um, but we have a few wines to get through. And um, if you're ready, I will start talking about the red wines. <clears throat> Just to preface, so this great Pinot Noir, we know with the whites that Chardonnay, it works everywhere in the world. I mean, there's barely a country that grows wine that hasn't got Chardonnay planted. But Pinot Noir is a much trickier grape to grow um, because it, it has a thinner skin than other red grapes, which means it can get sunburned and it won't tolerate hot areas. So most of Australia doesn't work, uh, just a couple of cooler places. New Zealand does work. Uh, Oregon, more than California, though there are some cooler spots in California, that works. But Burgundy remains the absolute uh, home of Pinot Noir. 
And though Chardonnay is a relatively recent grape, we don't know exactly when it happened, but probably within the last two to three hundred years, it evolved. We know that Pinot Noir has existed ever since they first put a name to a grape, which was in the um, 1300s. Um, and uh, Duke Philip of Burgundy put out an edict saying, I won't have any other grape, particularly not Gamay, planted in my Burgundy vineyards. has to be Pinot Noir. So um, it's got the history, it's got the pedigree, and we're beginning to find a few examples um, which are all right uh, in various other parts of the world, but it really has got to be exactly the right place and the smart people making it. So uh, personally, I also love the wines, the red wines you find in the Cote de Bone from villages such as Volnay and Pomar and Bone itself. But most people think that the concentration of excellence is just north of Bone in what they call the Cote de Nuit, which starts at Dijon, um, a couple of minor villages, and then the core villages are Gevre-Chambotin, Maurice Saint-Denis, um, Chambon-Musigny, Vougeot, Vaux-Romanet, and Nuit Saint-Georges itself. Almost all of them double-barreled names because they have taken the name of their best vineyard. And the first to do that was Gevre-Chambotin, uh, when Gevre en Montagne, Gevre in the Hills, as it was called, became um, Gevre Chambotin. And what we have here are um, three um, Gevre Chambotins, before we have two other two other wines from Vermeromine. Um But these three Gevre Chambotins, we begin with uh, a village wine, but from a very special vineyard, and we then go to two premier crews. So first up, um, we have a village wine from Les Eversel. Now about the classification, the rules were laid down in 1935 when they elected a few vineyards to be Grand Cru's and the rest were just names of vineyards within a village. And shortly <laughs> after that, they said, but the best vineyards, which haven't quite qualified as Grand Cru's, shall be called Premier Cru's. So that got enacted about six or seven years later. Um, but sometimes you find a village vineyard which you think on another day that could have been, perhaps should have been, uh, a Premier Cru. So that's where we are with Les Eversel. Um, and it's towards the north of the village. Um, everything immediately south of this vineyard is... Um, a premier crew, uh, and then Eversel is the first, which isn't. Um, and I think it's a, I think maybe it could have been. So our grower is called Dugat P. Um, so there's a family called Dugat who are well known in Chevrolet Chambertin, been around for many generations. And at some point, I think the generation prior to this one, um, uh, Mrs. Dugat, the wife, gets her name attached. So uh, Mr. Dugas uh, married a, a Miss Mademoiselle P, and the domain became Domaine Dugas P. And it was Bernard Dugas, recently retired, who really put it on the map, and his son Loïc, who's who's taken over and doing a great job, a uh, similar way to the Lamys. Um, now, when we come to this, uh, all the red wines, there is one key element of vinification which I think makes a difference. And that is whether having picked your grapes, you pick up the bunch of grapes, uh, all the grapes, and you put the whole lot into the fermenting vat. So you've got not just the, the fruit itself, but also the physical part of the uh, bunch, i.e. the stems. 
or you put it through a destemming machine and you just end up with the berries themselves and you ferment without the stems. And it's a big argument. I mean, if we were to take some of the most famous names, um, Domaine de la Romani Conti and Domaine Le Roi are fans of keeping the bunches whole um, and using the stems. But the late great Henri Jaillet uh, said absolutely no to stems. He said, just think, here's a grape stem. Pick it up, put it in your mouth, bite on that. It's a horrible flavor. Do you really want to have that in your wine? So that was his point of view. Uh, but other great names like Madame Le Roi uh, and Domaine Le Romani Conti, they say, no, we like the stems. And actually, I like the stems too. And in this instance, um, uh, Dugapi are quite fans. They don't go the whole hog. They don't make everything whole clusters. Uh, but this wine we have is 60% whole clusters. And they like to use a lot of new wood. So it's 75% new wood, three barrels out of four. They have quite a lot of land in Gervais-Chambertin um, at the village level. But uh, that gets blended together with the exception of this laser Eversel, uh, which they uh, prefer to make apart because they think it has a little bit of extra quality. It's high on the hill, east facing, gets the early morning sun. Um, <clears throat> the One of the great characteristics and skills of this domain is that they have really, really good plant material. We think of Pinot Noir as being just one uh, grape, and in a sense it is, but there are lots of um, either clones or subspecies before clones existed of Pinot Noir, which can either give you big berries with lots of juice and thin skins and fairly ordinary taste, but plenty of juice to make a lot of wine, or you can get very small bunches with small berries. You've got a big concentration, a big ratio of the skin, where all the flavor is, uh, to the juice. Um, and that's what the um, Duga family have. Um, and they've kept these grapes, uh, this, this vine genotype, going in their own family vineyards um, over the uh, successive generations. I think we're currently talking about the 10th or 11th generation of Duga uh, in the village. Um, and that really makes a difference. So normally, if you get a wine which is quite dark in color and quite intense, it's probably somebody who has picked the grapes quite late to make sure they're fully ripe. But in their case, they can pick them early because they've got such good Pinot fruit material that they get everything they want early on. So they avoid having wines of um, too high sugar levels when they're mature. Um, so when I, I tasted this in barrel in uh, 2018 uh, and gave it a very high rating, um, I do something that's a little bit different to most critics. Because nowadays, most critics like to mark uh, score the wines out of 100 points, which I also do because the market demands it. But I also have a star system alongside. And the reason for doing that is if you have an inexpensive wine from a basic appellation, so as it might be a straight Bourgogne Rouge or a very simple Bordeaux, and it's very good of its type, it's still only going to get a score in the high 80s, and it will that 88 points will be ignored. But if 88 points is the very best that that vineyard could produce, then it's worth five stars. Equally, if you have a Grand Cru, something called Chambertin or Musigny or in White Morachet, if it gets 88 points, that's a really poor score for that wine. And it only deserves one or two stars. So um, 
three stars means these wines are good for what they do. And as it happens, uh, I gave both the two whites three stars. Um, the next two reds, I gave four star ratings to. I haven't tasted um, or at least rated the um, the third Chauvet-Chambertin from Mr. Roti. Um, but the last two wines, they were both in my very top category of five stars. So well done, Jeff, or whoever put the uh, the wine selection together, because I only give about 5% of all wines get into the five-star category. And that means I'm really excited. So here we've got a four-star, which means it's a definite buy uh, from uh, Dugapi. 2017 in red was a big crop, which used to be uh, something to worry about in the further back past, because it used to mean that the grapes probably wouldn't ripen. But now with global warming, we find that the grapes can ripen with a slightly bigger yield. It means it's not the most concentrated of vintages. So these are not mythical wines in 2017, which will be around in 25 or 50 years time. But on the other hand, it means that they're absolute beauties to drink now. Um, though both are two 2017 producers here from Chevrolet, uh, Dugapi and Denis Morte. They both make wines capable of long aging. So they're only at the beginning, I suspect, of their aging potential. And assuming you have it, it would be good to taste um, the next wine because it comes from a Premier Cru vineyard, but it's very close by um, Eversel. So it's it's almost the next um, uh, vineyard. Um, in fact, I think it is the next vineyard or next but one vineyard to Eversel. But it's um, fortunate that it made it into the classification of Premier Cru when Eversel didn't. So Domaine Denis Morte, the domain was really started by Denis' father, Charles. Then Denis took over in 1993, had an immediate success, really great wines in his first vintage to put him on the map. <clears throat> he sadly died young in 2005. And after that, it's his son, Arno, who has taken over. And Arno has very much continued in the same mould. Um, like um, Dugapi, they're quite dark coloured wines. Um, there's a school of that within Chevrochamotin, good producers who seem to end up with darker wine, both in colour and in the, the fruit profile. Um, but again, he picks reasonably early, and it's uh, a tribute to the quality of the Pinot Noir vines he's got and the quality of his unbelievably meticulous uh, work in the vines that means that the grapes are ripe early, and uh, I think they make um, uh, stunning wines. Uh, and I adored this when I tasted it in barrel in December 2018. Um, he also uses a certain amount of whole clusters, i.e. the stems. That's reasonably new at the domain, but in the hotter years, he started to do it. And in this wine, it's about 40% stems. <clears throat> what difference do the stems make? Uh, they tend to make the wine a little bit livelier. They change the aromatics. You sometimes get a feeling of white pepper in there, which you wouldn't get in a fully de-stemmed wine. <clears throat> I did a fascinating uh, tasting one year at the Hong Kong Wine Club, where their system of doing it is they have a dozen wines. Um, you let them taste um, for half an hour without saying anything. They are expected to order the wines, 1 to 12, you're not allowed anything uh, uh, joint equal, but they've got to say 1, that's my favourite wine, down to 12, my least favourite, all in the rate of space of half an hour. 
And then we go through the wines and discuss them and somebody adds up the scores and sees what the favourite was. <clears throat> but I also said, out of the 12 wines I've brought you, um, four of them are made entirely 100% with the stems. Four of them are made using some stems, but not a majority. And four of them are made without any stems at all. And I want you also to vote on each wine, whether you think it's with all stems, some stems or no stems. And the fascinating thing there was the first six wines tasted chronologically, everybody got them right. And the next six wines, <laughs> as their palates got a bit more fatigued, um, people didn't get them right anymore. So it's really quite a mixed um, mixed bag, but it was very interesting. But some people came away from that tasting saying, I thought I didn't like stems, but I find that I do. Chevry Champetain is supposed to be one of the most powerful of the Appalachians or the villages in Burgundy. And it has this um, sort of name as being the king of wines, the wine of kings, le roi des vins, le vin des rois, which is all a bit tedious. Um, but actually, I think Chevry Champetain works very well if you don't try and force the issue and you don't try and make too powerful uh, uh, a wine. Okay, shall I talk a little bit about the third while you taste them? Yeah, sure, please. Okay. So the third comes from um, <clears throat> a domain called Joseph Roti. Uh, he is no longer with us. He was a man who lived life to the full, um, to the extent that the first time I went and tasted there, I was told to come at six o'clock in the evening, which I did. And uh, I eventually got out of there at around one o'clock in the morning. So it was a seven-hour tasting. You know, he stopped in the middle and took us to a local restaurant, gave us some uh, food to help soak it up. And then we went back and tried all the bottles. Uh, so he was a man who really did uh, live life a little bit extremely. And unfortunately, it meant, it meant that he didn't uh, live to ripe old age. Um, and his first son, Philippe, suddenly, uh, unfortunately, got very ill with the cancer. And so it's the younger son, Pierre Jean, uh, who's taken over. But it's very much a family domain. When I go and taste there, uh, you know, his mother will pop her head round the door and bring a few little um, cheese biscuits to nibble at. Uh, his sister will appear for a bit. Um, all the family are working out in the vineyards or in the winery. Um, and he makes wines which are uh, really, really, really meant for long-term aging. Um, they're very dense, concentrated wines. Um uh, Fontenay will probably have 50% um, of new oak, so one barrel in two. Uh, everything is de-stemmed, unlike the first two wines, so none of the stems in there at all. And um, I find the wines have such a density of fruit when I go and taste the, uh, the young wines that it's really hard to imagine drinking them for quite a long time afterwards. Wow. In this case, we've got 2015, um, which is a magnificent vintage in Burgundy, uh, hugely concentrated, but in a very glossy style that makes it possible to approach young. But my guess that this Fontenay, which is next to the Grand Cruz, uh, is a wine that's um, going to need um, still quite a lot more time. I think it will be more concentrated, more intense than the two 2017s, but maybe not quite so accessible. So those are my thoughts on it. It's not a wine. I didn't start tasting uh, the young wines at the winery. 
until the 2017 vintage. So I don't have an, a barrel note on this particular wine. If we sort of travel slowly down the Cote de Nuit, uh, while waiting for the next two wines uh, to be poured, um, after Chevry Chambertin, your next village is Moray Saint-Denis, and the one after is Chambol Musigny. And Chambol is all about elegance, and Chevry Chambertin is all about structure. And so in between the two, you have Moray Saint-Denis, where I think you can get some glorious wines, which are quite good value because Moray doesn't have quite the same reputation. But it sort of combines a bit of both the villages on either side. So it has a little bit of the elegance of Chambon Musigny, and it has the structure of Gervais Chambertin. So um, <clears throat> it's a very small village, and each of the individual vineyards is small. So you don't have the advantage in the marketplace of seeing lots of them around. But it includes a few Grand Crus, Claude La Roche and Claude Saint-Denis, who are owned by lots of different people. They all have slices. And Claude Lombre and Claude Tar, which are more or less monopolies. So you only have one. And they're, they're big rivals, those two. Um, so I think it's a, it's an interesting village to look at for um, under-the-radar value. And a lot of good producers in that village. Chambon Musigny did its usual thing of uh, um, hyphenating its favorite vineyard, uh, Musigny, which is unquestionably the best. There are two Grand Crus in Chambol, Musigny itself and Bon Mar. And there's a third um, vineyard which sells at the same price as Bon Mar. And it's only a premier cru in the official classification, but everybody thinks of it as being worth a Grand Cru, which is uh, Les Amoureurs, Chambon Musigny Les Amoureurs. <clears throat> it's probably true, though, that Chambon Musigny is a little bit at risk with global warming because it's a, a village where the um, vineyards tend to ripen quite early, and uh, that can be a danger in the hotter years. It's not all, all, all the producers, not all the vineyards, but uh, it's something that needs to be addressed in the coming years. After that, you have a village called Vujo, which really only has one uh, vineyard of note, which is called Clos Vujo, as the immense stone building, the Chateau de Clos Vujo, which was built um, 700 years ago uh, by the monks and uh, the monks of Burgundy. That's where they, they made their wine in that extraordinary building. Uh, and it's become a little bit of a, um, a center for this part of Burgundy. And then you have Von Romanet, the Appalachian Von Romanet, uh, which actually covers two villages, two communes, Von itself, and next door there's a just the wrong side of the railway line, there is a commune called Flagey Echezo. Um, but it also has vineyards which are up on the main hillside slope. Um, and they are, unless it's Grand Cru Echezo, which is the wine we're going to finish on, um, <clears throat> then any other wine from that commune sells itself under the banner of Von Romanet. And curiously, this one, the Premier Cru Les Beaumont, which is our next wine, uh, is actually um uh, partly in von Romanet and partly in Fleche Echezo. And Domaine Griveau, Jean Griveau, who have a, a big holding, nearly a hectare, um, have it split between the two. They have lots of premier crews in von Romanet, but this is my favorite. There are others which have more official fame in the marketplace, like Les Souchot and Les Regno and Les Brule, 
but Beaumont is the one which I like best. It's a domain I've come to know very well. Um, Jean Griveaux and his wife are amongst the senior citizens of uh, von Romanet. They were born in uh, 1928 and 1925, respectively. Um, their son, Etienne, took over in the late 1980s. And he is just now handing over to his daughter, Mathilde. Well, his children, Mathilde and Hubert, but it's um, largely his daughter, Mathilde, the elder of the two, who is um, taking on uh, the mantle as, as winemaker in this domain, Jean Griveaux. <clears throat> They've gone through a lot of changes in style over the years, but I think by um, when, during the, the, the 2000s and coming into the 2010s, they pretty much fixed the style that they really wanted to continue with, and it's been a little bit of tweaking ever since. Uh, so like roti these are people who don't like to use any of the whole clusters no stems at all everything is destemmed um they pick a little bit later um to go for what they think of as optimum ripeness um and uh they keep the barrel the wines in barrel for uh, about 18 months um before uh sending them to tank and then bottling them so uh, they also have uh, three Grand Crus, Echezeau, Clovugeau, and Richebourg, which is uh, very much up at the, the top of the tree. So um, <clears throat> this, to me, is one of the exciting domains in Von Romane, which has an awful lot of exciting domains. Domaine de Romane Conti, Domaine Loire, Domaine de Complige Belair, Meu Camisee, Catia, uh, Grivo, and... Um, <clears throat> there are probably half an others, Minoret, Gibourg, uh, Gérard Minoret, La Marche. You've probably got 15 or 20 domains who are making exciting wines at the moment. And uh, that's very encouraging because it would be very easy for Burgundy to have got complacent and to start thinking that because it's Burgundy, the wine must be good. And that was sort of how they felt when I came into this business in the early 1980s. When in fact the wines were not good. Uh, now they're way better, but everybody is keen to go on improving uh, and doing the best that they can. So that is your first of the two. And um, when I last tasted it, which was in September of 2018, in fact was a blind tasting rather than, um, which is sometimes more difficult to give wines really high scores. I gave this 97 points and five stars as a premier crew. Uh, I thought it was very, very uh, exciting. I thought the fruit and the oak had been extremely well integrated. It was a dark cherry fruit, and it was really, really long finish. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that's showing today. Um, hope you have that in your glasses. So now this wine is going to be different in a number of grounds. Uh, one is it's a Grand Cru from Echezeau. Um, one... Another point is that it's 2018. Now, that was the first of the sort of new look vintages of being really hot and dry. 2018, 19, 20, and then 2022 fall into this pattern. Nothing very much before that, apart from 2003 was an outlier. Um, and But now it's the norm. It, it wasn't true of 2021, but otherwise everything from 2018 onwards has been hotter and drier and richer and often slightly more alcohol. 
So this one is the only wine which is probably going to be ahead um, uh, higher in alcohol than 14%. It will probably say 14 or maybe 14.5% on the label. Um, but I thought it was a very good wine indeed, silky and sensual. He's got a big holding of Echezo in several different plots, and he's able to blend them together to get a very um, rounded wine. This also is destemmed, um, also 18 months in barrel, about two-thirds new wood. And you'll see that this uh, domain has three names, Coca, Loison, Fleurot. Um, the Cocas come from the village of Maurice Saint-Denis and have brought some vineyards from there. Uh, the um, uh, Loisons come from Flagey Echezeau and would have been the owners of this Echezeau. And then the Fleuro, they also married into our local uh, sort of grain cereal farmers rather than wine people. And there's actually a fourth name because the current winemaker uh, is called Tomar Collado. Uh, so I think either one of the Cocars or the Fleuros um, married a Monsieur Collado, who's actually mayor of the village. Um, so this was a domain that used to make really ordinary wines in big volumes. and They didn't even bother to bottle them themselves. They sold them off in bulk. And then starting with Tomar Collado, he, his best mate is somebody called um, Sebastian Catiar. And Domaine Catiar and Von Romanet was making beautiful wines. And Tomar Collado is starting to make wines in very much the same style. So he's one of the later people to pick, and the grapes are all destemmed. So ostensibly, the wines are similar in style to the Grivo wines, but everybody puts their own uh, their own little little pattern uh, into the wine making. I found this really smooth and silky, sensual uh, when I tasted it from barrel. Haven't tasted it since the barrel. So. What von Romanet and with it Escheso are supposed to deliver to us is a most superb intensity, but also with a class of fruit, a really stylish style of fruit, um, velvety, uh, which puts them just that little touch above any of the other villages in most people's impression. Well, I hope you've enjoyed them. I hope uh, drink a lot more Burgundy and uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. And uh, thank you very much for your company. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. Bye-bye.